the first thing that I wanted to start with is that for me recently, a friend of ours, he is a former Australian millionaire. He's an Indian millionaire. Yes. About 75 years old, and he retired as the commissioner to India from Australia. He works on something which I think has not really caught on in India yet. It's called cultural intelligence, and he is an expert on mapping civilizational values. Right. So he's invited across the world to give lectures because he specializes in civilizational values of the West, of Russia, of the U.S., and India. Now, strangely, he's been called more and more to China. Right. Strangely, what he does all the time is that he's never been invited by Indian governments to talk about uh, civilizational values or cultural intelligence. So the first thing that I want to ask you, Raji. He links it to a certain arrogance of the Indian mind, which I know you have also uh, talked about, and we'll come to that in a bit. But first, I want to ask you: Why do industrialists of various countries study civilizations? Yeah. So the East India Company started this field called Indology, not out of love, but to understand understand the people of India, in order to be able to rule them with them uh, rule over them negotiate with them partner them uh, divide and rule so it was to understand uh, united states cia has a lot of uh, funding for islam studies uh, you know studying foreign languages during the soviet era there was a huge amount of grants for learning russian so you can understand study the other studying the other is, is something the west does very well uh, now when i was in itt we used to get uh, corporate executive orientation for any delegation going somewhere so i remember going to japan leading a delegation the specialist came and they taught us how to bow how much to bow who bows first you or the other side and it has to do with the relative seniority in age and the relative seniority in rank and if you don't bow enough you are arrogant if you bow too much you are obsequious so you buy bowing the right etiquette so this little nuance so the americans are very good at that it's part of the corporate training and then you i found that uh, the study of india is very is thriving in china we di- we did a vedic edu- uh, conference and a delegation of eight or nine chinese came and i thought maybe they were dissidents you know they're not allowed to do these things but they said no the government actually funds them and they have hundreds of chinese scholars who study indian civilization they study sanskrit they study buddhism exactly. they study vedas and all that this time at the book fair china was the official guest and they brought in so many writers yeah. to come and interact with indian writers find right. out more about what right. books to read right. and a friend of mine an indian has a coaching corporate coaching business to teach negotiation skills so he 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 runs a thriving business where he has multinational clients and he teaches there he takes a group of them executives for so many days and he teaches them how to negotiate and he says what indians do is called haggling it's not negotiation and he'll tell you what the difference is uh, and so he also got i think reliance or tatas one of these guys also brought him in but now he's become a specialist in a particular kind of negotiations which is intercultural intercultural where, negotiation where 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 this uh, somebody is going to negotiate in china or somebody is going to negotiate somewhere and they need to know what are the cultural nuances how you negotiate with them so that's another under- study of civilizations that matters a friend of mine uh, uh, princeton is on the board on the diversity board 
American multinationals, one of the fashionable things is to create a diversity board. So she just got onto the diversity board of Toyota, and there's other diversity boards she's on. And the diversity board studies different cultural, civilizational identities because these companies have people all over the world. They are their employees, they are their partners, they are their suppliers, they have to not make a fool of themselves, they must know how to say what to say. So this business of diversity as a form of civilization studies is also very important. And there are major programs sponsored by multinationals on China studies, Japan studies, Islam studies, you know, Russia studies. And now, right. now a big demand for uh, how to understand Modi. This is, uh, when Modi got elected, people thought I should go and give seminars. Now, of course, I'm not available to do that. But there's a huge demand for that. So the, the Westerners are very interested, but I don't find the Indian uh, multinationals and corporates as interested. I will give you an example, my Tata group, and when they acquire a company, a foreign company, mm. in Africa, various US, her job is to go and kind of give them the Tata orientation. Mm. So she was staying with me, and they, they acquired something in the Midwest. So I was very keen to understand her experience. And I don't want to get into specific details because, you know, I don't want to talk uh, personal stuff. But I must say she was incredibly naive about what the uh, Midwest, she, had, she didn't understand this is Midwest. The Midwest white culture is different. It's different from... You cannot say certain things. The New York yeah, a cosmopolitan... Yeah, didn't understand these things. And she was sort of like telling them what, how it is and just complaining that they don't get it. I said, no, 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 you don't get it. You must first study them before you can say any of these things. Because she said her, their reaction is, their reaction was, oh, all this is fine. We respect the parent company, but we really don't need all this. In a sense, kind of very politely dismissive. And she wasn't sufficiently equipped to negotiate that with them. So I think this is a very important point that we don't take negotiation seriously enough. So the preparation, the homework, the level of research that companies, and I would hazard even uh, sort of political teams do for, say, American leaders or for American companies, we don't match that. So at some point, we are falling short. I hope that, you know, with you raising more and more awareness about it, this is going to slowly, there's going to be a shift in this. You know, even the Foreign Service, I'm very disappointed. Oh, terribly. Uh, uh, for the last 10, 15 years, I've been looking at uh, the, the Indian Consul General in New York. They're completely out of touch. There was one fellow who somebody said, uh, you should go meet this fellow and he'll, he'll tell you about what's going on in the academic world and media, about our culture and all. So he came to see me and then he invited me to his, his place and he would start calling me uh, whenever he was invited. So for once he was invited to a South Asian conference in Harvard and he was driving there on his limo and on his way he called me and he says, Ye conference ho rahi hai, aise hoga, what should I say? So I said, first you tell me who are the other speakers. And he told me the names of these speakers. He didn't know them. And I said, this guy is a Khalistani, this one fellow. This other fellow is very radical uh, uh, Pakistan guy. And this is an ambush. And they're going to make a really uh, thing out of you. So he, did, he was very scared. So I read out. I told him, here are some of the facts. You should, you should be prepared that uh, if you've been invited and this is the kind of group it is, you should be prepared. So he actually got quite nervous and didn't uh, go there. But oh. then he got very, he, he started talking to me about it. And I said, the Ministry of External Affairs, the State Department in the U.S. would never have a prominent person 
go off without homework. Without homework, and, absolutely. And they would really know who's who and they would know a lot about him. But I was surprised that this government of India, they, they don't have a, even now, I don't think they have a think tank. Just a, I have met, they uh, don't. I met the new external affairs minister and, you know, extremely well-meaning, extremely decent, extremely connected, very hardworking, all of that. But I feel that the support team just don't have the depth of understanding the others in civilizational terms. Absolutely. To understand strategy and to keep up with the, with the amount of research that is going on around the world on all the desks, I think we, are, we, have to, we need a paradigm shift somewhere. I, uh, I just recently met the new foreign uh, services officers bunch. They are tra being trained in the Foreign Services Institute. I did, that, I, did that. Yeah? I attended that once. I gave a seminar there. Exactly. So they, they are so pleased with having become foreign services officers because from the time children are young, we keep telling them that they have to do well in exams. So these are kids who've done the best. Some of them are doctors, some of them are from the IITs, and now they've become IFS officers. It's almost as though it's done for them. They don't, they don't realize that this is the beginning of the journey, and this is where it begins. I had a very interesting experience. The director of FSI, uh, you know, Foreign Services Institute, Institute yeah. invited me uh, last year to give a talk to the whole new batch of about 30, 30 of them. And I, I, my talk was on Indian civilization and its place in the world and its place in diplomacy and how the Chinese project it, how the Japanese project theirs. The Korea Foundation has come up with books on Korea, which every library is given. The China Foundation, you know, all of these foundations of four nations are doing this work. Nobody's doing it for India. And what are some of the issues that diplomats will face? And I, and I must say the group was 50-50 polarized. There were those who were so happy. And they came to me and they said, we want to learn more. Tell us, these are things we are not taught. I thought they would be taught. The others were very upset. This bothered me. I would say at least half the people said, what India? I come from Northeast. I don't understand what India. Is it the Dalits India? Is it this guy's India? Which India? So they had this sense of there is no such thing as... A, my topic was the Indian grand narrative and how you project the Indian grand narrative overseas. And they were completely against this idea that of such a thing as an Indian grand narrative. There is a narrative for this group and a narrative for that group. And it shocked me that these are the people who will be representing India. And who, it is, who is this India that they are representing is not that clear to them. Now, they are very well indoctrinated on what's the Kashmir policy and this and that, nuclear policy. But on civilization and culture, the sense of unity, continuity, I didn't see that they were convinced enough and knowledgeable enough. So I, can, I have that issue with them. So, what is your assessment of Indian leaders vis-a-vis -vis others in this respect? Well, Chinese, when you negotiate with a Chinese person or a Japanese person, uh, there is a level of negotiation which is very sort of industry specific. You're buying this, buying that. It's all about details of that particular product. And of course, the country don't enter the picture. But at some point, when you build a close bond and you build a deeper relationship, you will realize that this per these people are exceedingly sure of who they are. The sense of who I am as a Chinese, a collective identity, is very clear in them. And I don't th see the Indian as secure, as comfortable in his skin. Uh, very either it doesn't matter, we're all the same anyway, Okay, a, a kind of a postmodern kind of a view, uh, or uh, a very sort of uh, uh, kind of a very narrow view or, or, or a particular sectarian view. But you know, an American... I was very impressed when I worked for American uh, corporates that senior executives, 
were so detailed in their knowledge of the founding fathers and the sense of history, the values, the philosophy. I mean, they really knew their stuff because their grounding is very clear. The sense of Western classics as studying the Western classics as a sign of being very sophisticated. Whereas who would study the traditional Indian texts as a sign of being very savvy? Or, or the Indian literatures in the Indian languages. Yes, yes. So I think uh, the, uh, I feel that uh, uh, the Indian has gambled on the assumption that these boundaries of identity will go away. But they're not gone away. If you look at where, how the identities are coming up, popping up in the West, West, Islam, this one, that one, all of these identities are popping up. In fact, it's more identity conscious than maybe 20 years ago. So this prediction of the postmodernists that these things will vanish, boundaries will vanish, we live in one global era, is not happening. Absolutely. Boundaries are erecting, if anything. One needs to just look at the visa rules to understand that the West, what we mean by the West, is definitely uh, an entity that sees itself as one when it comes to other parts of the world. Yeah, and you know, there's also, uh, when, when Mittal was buying the steel, the French... Arcelor. Uh, there was a lot of uh, negative press on him being Indian. I have clippings of that in the French media. Now, you know... And every time there are layoffs, there are huge demonstrations and... Tatas, when they had some problems, they, they, they turned it into an ethnic, racial kind of a thing. Uh, and, and I've seen, uh, I've stayed with the SP Hinduja 15, 20 years ago in Geneva, and he discussed all these things. It was affecting him. How the sense of who he is... Whether, no matter how hard he tries to say none of this matters to me, but it matters to the other person. So right. there are stereotypes through which they're looking at you, and you have to understand enough to say, okay, I anticipate they're probably thinking of these things, whether they're saying it or not, because they're very polite. What, what am I going to say as and when required? Right. What am I supposed to know about them? The deeper level, the surface level, is a very secular, industry-specific Dialogue. Very civil sort of. A very, know, I mean, IT. Polite. We talk about IT. We don't do this software, this kind of thing, and we don't. There, it's like don't ask, don't tell. I won't tell you, and you don't ask me things that are awkward. Hmm. The don't ask, don't tell, is an American term. Uh, during the Clinton era, uh, they they wanted to know what to do about gays in the military, because the the laws were against gays, and it was very politically incorrect to continue that law. So, nor, but there was also a large segment of the military that didn't want to make it official, mm. didn't want to make it public and official that people can be openly gay. So, how to strike a balance? And they came up with this law which says, don't ask, don't tell. Meaning, you, don't, you won't be asked and you don't, don't, volunteer and the you information. don't voluntarily tell. Mm. Keep it unstated. So, this don't ask, don't tell, I feel is also sort of the de facto posture a lot of Indians have vis-a-vis -vis their civilizational identity. Indians are very comfortable talking about Bollywood, cricket, pop culture, cuisine, these kind of pop things. But Americans have a pop culture too. But beneath the pop culture level, which is all harmonizing, and everything is very global and so on, there is a deep culture. There is a deep culture which is beneath the pop culture, which is very specific, very history, historically oriented. So an American deep. identity. There's a very deep, deep American identity at multiple. There are three levels of American identity. I gave a series of lectures at India International Center 10 years ago. There's three levels of identity. There is this very deep Judeo-Christian uh, identity and how it has been, uh, how it has formed over 
two, three hundred years. Then I call the top level is pop culture, which is very easy. Everybody here enjoys mm -hmm. it. In between is the institutions. These institutions are very robust institutions, and they protect the deep culture, and they perform and play the pop culture. Right. So there's a three-level cake that you have to understand to really get to the bottom of it. When you're talking to an American, you can be talking at the pop culture level. It's very easy. Mm. You can be talking at an institution level. It's our institution, their institution, negotiating. But if you really understand them, you must, to understand them, you must understand the deep culture level. So, you know, there's an allied question along with this, that you've spent four decades, more than four decades, in fact, in the U.S. So are there any sort of key things about Americans that you want to share more uh, in addition to what you just said? Yeah. Uh, especially in the ease of doing business, understanding them? Yeah, I think the, one of the important things is their history of immigrants and each negotiating their place as a hyphenated identity you know, Irish-American, Italian-American, Italian -American, Jewish-American, Hispanic-American, Black-American, Chinese-American, and now Indian-American. I've studied this very systematically, very clinically, taken a lot of courses, delivered lectures, written about it, discussed Spoken with, to people. with many different hyphenated groups to understand their history and how they negotiated. It's a very clear process which Indians must learn to go through. And Indians are a little confused because we don't come with that strong identity. It's, uh, you know, other than the pop culture. So uh, that's the formation of American uh, identities. And, and it's a very, very, there is the Irish Day Parade, there is the Japanese Day Parade, India Day Parade, Pakistan Day Parade, Chinese Day Parade. There's all these about 50 ethnicities that have annual parades in, you know, central New York City. Mm -hmm. And everybody mm -hmm. ce celebrates, and the mayor comes and all that stuff. That's a sort of a showcase uh, in one city. Of, a, of what the nation is all about. So the celebration of your hyphenated identity is strong. It's not going away. And to become fully American, you don't have to stop being an Indian. This is very different than maybe in other in European countries where perhaps it's not as easy to assert your separate identity. And this is why, you know, Muslims are, it's not as difficult in the U.S. unless, until these recent problems have happened. After nine as it has been, as it has been in, in European countries. Because this, the, the ability to negotiate your hyphenated, what does this hyphen consist of? How Indian am I? And how do I Indianize America? What do I bring to the American tapestry about India and say, this is now American. I'm bringing this to you. I mean, there's yoga. There's all kind of things that they really like. And this is all negotiated. So you become, you retain who you are, and you also become fully American without having to compromise your distinctiveness. It's a very interesting American phenomenon. I don't know if this exists elsewhere. Right. So this is a part of the, the whole thing. So, you know, what also interests me is our response. We in India, our response to America and how I think we refuse to update ourselves, uh, ourselves at a deeper cultural level. For instance, uh, popular culture is all fine, like you said, but we never look at, say, the evidences contained in literature. Serious fiction exposes the underbellies, the various fault lines within America, and it exists. Any, say, a lot of fiction which talks about the, the Indian underbelly is championed in the West. It wins awards. It's written about. Whereas we never seem to be able to do the opposite. Well, one of my pet peeves is how 
our literary festivals are really run by foreigners in term, or, or Indians who have got a foreign lens uh, with authors based on who will, who will be appealing to those guys, to the rest. I don't know any other place which is like that. I don't think the Chinese are that interested in what is the best in the United States. Uh, nor do I think the Americans would be very impressed if uh, some Chinese guys or Russian guys were running the literary festivals. So we have this issue with media. Most of these uh, Barkha Dutt and uh, Rajdeep Sardesai, Rajdeep, mm -hmm. these kind of people, they all got degrees from uh, Columbia School of Journalism and so on. They're great schools. But it has influenced their lens. It has influenced their way of looking. Uh, I think the, in that sense, the local Indian language journalists are more authentically Indian. So this lang English language has also penetrated the style of thinking. Uh, and that is, that. so we are studied from the outside. The, the most prestigious place to get a degree in Sanskrit is not any Indian place. It, it's a toss-up between Heidelberg, Harvard, Harvard, Chicago, Harvard, Chicago uh, Columbia. You know, Columbia, you know, maybe Oxford, Heidelberg, these kind of few places. If you go to Banaras Hindu University, you go to Karnataka Sanskrit University, very traditional. You go to the top universities, Sanskrit uh, universities in Chennai. I've been doing that tour. You go to Delhi University, Sanskrit. You ask uh, the young people, where would you rather get a degree? They all tell you they'd rather get the degree there. And where, where do you publish your paper to be known? You publish in one of those journals. And where, which is and the obviously then you write it in English. You write, no, right. And you also submit to what will be accepted. The referees will keep rejecting. In fact, two or three people in my talks, in the talks I've been having, two or three of the panelists gave their experiences that they, they had a certain interpretation. That's the traditional interpretation. It would keep getting rejected. And the, to, bring, to uh, be allowed to speak at an international conference, they had to self settle for something that the other guys would accept. So I don't know any other civilization whose study as a civilization is driven from the outside. This is a very peculiar Indian yeah. and Chinese also, Chinese control all the China studies journals. They are run out of uh, China. The, the peers and the experts, the editorial people, they're all Chinese people. So the Westerners who want to become credentialed in China studies in Princeton or Harvard or wherever, they have to make sure they're in the good books of the Chinese, not the other way around. And similarly for Japan, similarly for Korea, similarly for Russia, they, they, those countries treasure their civilizational study as a big asset, as a national asset, they have to control. We haven't, we haven't controlled the brand. brand we haven't India. been able to. Exactly. And it's also very complicated because recently, it's not that the government has not spent money on Sanskrit. So you have a lot of Sanskrit universities. You have, But unless we are able to make it cool and attractive, unless we are able to attract people, It'll never, it can never be fixed in that way, you know. It's not just a question of money. It's a question of imagination. Is how to mentally de-traumatize, de-stress, relax. And this is yoga nidra. So you go to all of this relaxation response, which got so much money from the National Institute of Mental Health to study, all, to, to teach people all these things, is actually transcendental meditation. So I track all these things. Our own people don't seem to know that this has got huge brand value. And they don't Not seem to care. Not only products. One is at the product level. You could make actual products. The other is as a national brand of who we are. As a country's brand, we need to do that. And then things like, if you ask a, a marketing company uh, that what is the profile, the behavior profile of uh, liberal white, liberal white, particularly liberal white woman. So the profile will be 
that she goes and does yoga. Goes and does vegetarian. yoga. Vegetarian. And she does. She's animal. Buys. Uh, she's animal fair friendly. Fair trade uh, coffee. She's she's animal friendly and eco friendly. So why don't we take khadi and brand it as eco friendly textile? Because this world wants these kind of images. So how you brand India, what it is good for, you know, can be a national resource. And not only not only for the people who are in those products, but even if you're selling some machinery or you're selling whatever you're selling, uh, you know your reputation, your image of who you are as a supplier will be associated with that. Brand means what you're associated with unconsciously. So basically, we are sort of doing it's a double whammy. We are not looking at who we are, not understanding that deeply, nor do we also know enough about the others yes. to understand these specific niches that exist which which can and be both have to be done together uh, we have a tradition we lost it's called purva paksha and uttar paksha and i explain that in my book purva paksha means studying the other so the vedantins study the buddhists and they study the other guys this and that the school of thought studies other schools of thought other intellectual ideas other communities that's called purva paksha and Uttar Paksh is my response to that. So we've been debaters. We've been into uh, studying others for a long time and positioning ourselves and giving an answer. That's called competitive research. That's Absolutely. Today, industry research, competitive research is what we call Purva Paksha, Uttar Paksha. And as they say, that there were sometimes these famous debates between Buddhist monks and Sanatanis where they did Purva Paksha. They did Uttar Paksh and the one who lost would burn himself to death. So the price of losing a debate was one's own life. And now I see these, these things which are called debates, which are hardly debates, which are people enclosed in silos who don't know about the other person's worldview and who come to a TV studio to just scream at each other, encouraged by the moderator. So from a culture of debating, we have really sort of uh, fallen into... Uh, complete sort of silo behavior. Yes. I think we're fragmented into camps of anger. Uh, camps of anger, mutual conflict, and it's getting worse. Uh, you know, this whole fragmenting a society into little groups and even smaller groups. Democracy, rather than healing and uplifting, it's turned into a... Uh, caste is more like a, a combat uh, lobby group. We have, uh, in the U.S., we have political lobby groups. In Washington, there's thousands of them uh, for the cigarette industry, for the nuclear industry. Uh, industries have them. Ethnic groups have them. Religion has them. Every ideology kind of has their own lobby groups. And I think in India, uh, they're caste groups. So maybe it's because lobby groups are not legal or they're not, uh, they're not given the same sort of formal structure. But there you set up a lobby group. You register with the government saying, I'm setting up a lobby group. This is my lobby the scope of my lobby and you file an annual return you get donations it's official you spend money it's official there's no it's not something sleazy or under the table under the table uh, you are political funding is official you have to disclose that's all so i think uh, maybe if we had lobby groups uh, it may be there may be less dependence perhaps i don't know but the caste groups have become too strong so this divisiveness you cannot is so strong now that you cannot have Conversation, really debate. Conversation. Right. So this is, I think, uh, uh, back to the issue of what are some of the Indian assets. I would say family. Americans are suffering, and at the cutting, one of the cutting edges, the divorce rate, which is now happening here because we're getting westernized, and the whole, you know, teen pregnancy 
and anger, the, the, the crime rate, and, and also with medicine, with medical advancements, people are living longer. The geriatrics industry has made people live longer. But the last 20 years of life is sort of unhappy life. Very unhappy. Very isolated, no family. I used to be a hospice volunteer. I've done a lot of different kinds of volunteers to understand society. I was also a volunteer for AIDS Foundation, where I would get them rights from the various government agencies and all that as a, as a, as a person who could negotiate for them. And when I was a hospice worker, they trained me to be the person who was going to help somebody who's dying, who's decided that, okay, he doesn't need any more treatment, there's no hope, and he just wants to die. But they need some help, they need somebody. These are very lonely people. Their kids would be somebody else in some other state. They would send them some flowers. Greeting card. But no real love. So I would often be the last person they would talk to. So it is amazing what all they have to say, what their questions are. And I would bring a lot of my philosophy to help them. And it did help them. So this is a very lonely society that in the U.S. And we're becoming that way. We're picking some of the bad habits. I'm, I'm glad you say this because, you know, recently I read a book called Generation Debt by a very young American writer, Anya Kamenetz. And what she's saying is that post, uh, you know, post 2008 and the, uh, and the recession and the state of how young people don't get jobs, they take on huge debts to go to university, she came up with this very interesting theory. She's saying that we should, that they, that in America, they should promote a three generations living together structure where the old people who have their retirement funds can pay for the education of the grandchildren and the grandchildren in return for that are there instead of their expensive hospital care. Now I think that we already with our joint family system they were probably, there at... They probably got it from uh, studying this. A lot of these things are, a lot of Indian values which we've rejected are actually being reconsidered, brought in. Elsewhere. Yes. And all we need to do is, if it is at 80%, we need to take it to 100%, make it work in a more modern setup, rather than throwing away the baby with the bathwater, which is sort of being recommended. See, the, the idea of a very highly, uh, we're talking, Puneet and I were talking about this also, the very idea of a very highly, Puneet mentioned this, highly individualized, individualistic society. Uh, then there is a state which is the granddaddy looking after everybody through social security, they're going bankrupt. I mean, every generation uh, is going to get less and less social security benefit and have to pay more and more. So this business of state looking after, giving you the safety net has not worked. We had jatis doing that. Uh, jati is the place of last resort. I could always go back to my jati. And no matter what, they take me in. And the worst uh, uh, punishment would be to be, to be kicked out of your jati because of something. So that's, that as an alternative social structure and economic structure, there's a professor, Vaidya Nathan, in Indian Institute of Management, Bangalore. He's done a whole structure on the economic consequences of jatis, and he shows that many of the progressive jatis that have done very well in, the, in India's economy, economic boom are actually, the, it's their jati structure and their, their ability to work together and help each other that makes them so successful. For instance, the Patels owning all these motels, half the more than half the motel uh, rooms in the U.S., it is because the Patels are a very well-knit jati. So uh, the Sikhs own a bunch of gas stations, a lot of the gas stations. So if you look at, if you look at that structure, the, it's even brought into the United States. Koreans own certain businesses that are Korean-owned. Delhi. The Korean delis and, and uh, laundromats, there are certain businesses in which they kind of got a corner on this. So we have had this jati structure. It's very considered very bad and abusive, but actually 
people are thinking that this is a better alternative than uh, you know the social security of the state because that's going to go broke. Maybe the social security system worked in very tiny countries like Sweden and you cannot scale them. The United States cannot uh, bring, make it work. So if we were to Americanize, break down our jati structure, break down our family structure, who is going to do the social security? And especially we, given the population that we have. Huge population. So we have, we have these, uh, these issues. Uh, we have, I think we are giving away some of the things that are social, cultural assets. Uh, that's capital we are just throwing away. And others are looking at it, experimenting it, and probably introducing it for themselves. We're picking up bad habits like, uh, you know, if you look at cigarette smoking, uh, there's a decline in the last 10 years in cigarette smoking in the United States. And so where do all these Philip Morris and all these people go? They go to Asia and there's a big increase in cigarette smoking. So we're picking up these habits. We're picking up the increase in beef. I mean, I'm not want to get into that controversy, but purely as a medical issue. Or whatever processed food, I mean. Purely as a medical issue. There is a huge campaign against red meats in the United States and against, uh, you know, uh, chemical fertilizers, going back to organic, going to organic. My grandmother used to have organic farming. We didn't, we, we just introduced all these chemical fertilizers because of, uh, you know, boosting production and mm -hmm. all that, just blindly doing it, killing a lot of the ge genetic diversity, biodiversity. Now we are finding that actually the poor farmer who never used chemicals, he's got a crop which is organic. And that has international value of a very high kind. So we are thinking that going from tradition to modernity in a westernized way is actually progress. In some Absolutely. cases, it's destruction. Absolutely. So before we open it up to the audience for questions, there's something that I wanted to seriously, you know, have a response from you. Now, in the in the Marxist scheme, though of course it's anathema in, in this context, but in the Marxist the, uh, scheme, you say there's a base and a superstructure in any society. The base comes from the economics, so from your production, from you know, from the corporates, all of it together, and then you have the superstructure where institutions, culture, all of that is the superstructure. However, the soft power of any country comes from the superstructure too you know, but the base has to contribute to that in a, in a huge way. Yeah, I would say that the soft, the soft power visible and projected externally is pop culture. But what the external people don't see, they see the America as a pop culture that's being exported and they see India, Bollywood, cricket and all is, ex, you know, but the deep culture, the deep culture is what holds it together internally. It may or may not be visible to the outsiders. That is why unless somebody is, becomes a student and an expert on America, you will just know them as a pop culture. And that's very bad we have, we might be losing. We might be losing because of the modernization, the standardization, the standard brands, the standard kind of things we are doing. Maybe we are losing this. And this is a kind of a part of our village culture. I noticed this. I noticed that uh, uh, the Indian who is not yet westernized is a very creative person. So that's one of the strengths, I would say, worth preserving. I'd like to ask a question which I'm sure everybody has in their minds. Why are we so insecure about our culture? We feel that um, we are not superior. The Western world is superior, whether it is UK, whether it is America, even continental Europe, anybody. We don't think that we are worth anything when it comes, not anything, but at least we are superior to us. We'll enjoy our food. We are good in that. So the food is very good because we are proud of it. 
Uh, women are really, really uh, good at uh, uh, you know, clothes and, and jewelry, and, and, and the women are very fussy, very high, high, high standard of buying. When the consumer in India is sophisticated, the producers are producing good stuff. So, you know, you could actually extend that to other areas and say, if we, the consumers, become very fussy and very proud of various other areas of our work, then the producers will have to up their value, up the, up the standard of that. So I think it has to do with whether the public and the consumer of culture uh, has that pride. And, and uh, where they've lost the pride, the question is, is it the colonial past? Is it that... Uh, uh, is it that we just don't think we are going to be good enough? You know, right now, with the flood of Chinese goods, uh, you know, you will see a generation of Indians who will look up to China with awe the way we used to previously look up to England with awe. It's a kind of a, uh, kind of a consumerism from China, all the nice kind things that you buy, you know, for your home and all that, Chinese. So you associate Chinese with superiority. So there, there is that kind of a hang up also. Anyone else? You talked about uh, creating, you talked about, uh, you know, companies creating a brand differentiation and then go to global markets for Indian companies, you know, take something from healing or, uh, are you expecting this from the company leaders or the country leaders? Because, you know, if India has to go out and create a brand, it has to go out as a country. For example, you talked about German uh, engineering. Beautiful. Good. See, Japan Foundation is a good model, Korea Foundation, China Institute, they started Confucian Institutes, a few hundred of them, they're called Confucian Institutes. In all three of these examples, it's a corporate government alliance. Uh, government organizes it, put money into it, corporates join in. The Japan Foundation, you know, there was Japan bashing uh, in the... Uh, uh, in the first Bush, uh, senior Bush era, that uh, they're dumping products, we should put sanctions on them. You know, if you remember that, there was that Japan bashing era. The Japan Foundation decided that they're going to train 20,000 American school teachers how to teach Japan in a way which is Japan friendly. So they developed these DVDs, they put up four centers in the United States where uh, school teachers would be brought, they would be given a little stipend and they would be taught how to teach Japan back in school and they would be given the whole kit and then they would go and teach and the ones who were very good would, could come back for an intermediate course and then the ones who went to advanced course would be sent to Japan at their expense. So whole program, this went on for five, eight years, 20,000 teachers were trained and the next whole new group of Americans have been taught that Japan are wonderful people, they're good people because they've been trained a certain way. So Japan Foundation gets credit for that. Korea Foundation has one bookshelf of books on Korea created very patriotically. There is no uh, caste, cows, curry type like Indian. If you ask Indians to do it, they, they, a lot of this left-wing social scientists would say, what all is wrong with us? That's what they'll tell you. Uh, so the, the Korea Foundation has on their history, on their technology, on their dance, music, culture, this, that, that, all of those things, political history, whatever, very nice. And they give it to libraries. Now, I'll tell you an experience. I was, I was chair of Asian Studies by, in the state of New Jersey. Uh, there was a very kind of a nice governor who later left. So he created this commission on Asian Studies because the idea being that uh, future generation of Americans will be having to deal with Asia and they better be well informed. So I was made the chair. 
So we took a whole, uh, uh, people from all over Asia were on this commission, I was chairing, and so we came up with a whole write-up on what are the major themes in, uh, in Asia, Asian studies. So one of them was the export of knowledge and culture from India to the rest of Asia. Not only Buddhism as a religion, but a lot of things went, a lot of mathematics went, astronomy went, medicine went, a lot of uh, images, iconography, art, all, of, all kind of stuff, architecture. So we built all these modules. Two Indians on this were the ones who were always opposing me. They were saying, but why aren't you talking about uh, what's the plight of Dalits? So I said, but in the American school system, these are sixth grade, eighth grade people, you don't teach slavery. I mean, you do not teach that. And when they, are, when they have modules on France and when they have modules on these other countries, you, those countries are being taught in a very proud way. But these people were so full of that. So I had to neutralize them. So I had a little gathering in my house. I didn't invite them. I invited the Chinese, the Japanese, the person from Myanmar, the Vietnamese, the Thai people. Cambodians, I invited these representatives, we had a nice discussion and I said, what do you think? Do you feel that like they're teaching Western civilization, which is standard to be taught, blacks are wanting to teach African civilizations, they, how they actually contributed to Egypt and then Egypt contributed to Greece and so all of that stuff they're teaching. So why aren't we able to teach all the great positive things? Every one of them supported me. So I said, I'll tell you what, next time we have this Asian commission meeting, I want you to raise this issue because those two guys won't listen to anything I have to say. So I kept my mouth shut at the next meeting. It was Chinese guy who started this discussion that we don't want any negative stuff. The Vietnamese guy said this, this lady from uh, Myanmar was very tough. So they took over and after that the two Indians left. They, so I have problem with the Indian art people, a deep inferiority complex about anything positive. You try and say something positive, there will be somebody there saying, raising his hand and saying, but you know, why don't we discuss, we had this suicide the other day, somebody, women got burned, some this and that. Well, that's fine. But if you're talking about building a brand, the others are not do talking about these issues. Chinese, Chinese will not, uh, in Harvard, the Tibetans complain that whenever there's a China event, there is no Tibetan descent allowed. They just somehow cleaned out. They, they complain about it. Chinese have so much clout that they will, they can demand that. Indian ambassador comes, there will be all this Kashmir separatist and this Khalistani group and that group, all there shouting, we just haven't had the clout to say, okay, out with those guys. So we are not able to control the brand image of a civilization to the same extent that some other people are. That's... Because we don't consider it of strategic importance that, you know... Also disunity within here. Also, we've had two, two generations of uh, the, the Ramila Thapar children, Irfan Habib, Ramila Thapar. R.C. Majumdar wrote this History of India, multiple volumes, after independence. It was very solid, very patriotic. And then came the age of coalition governments, and Indira Gandhi needed support from the left to create her government. And so what they extracted... Nowadays, the coalition partners would extract a ministry because you get more bribes that way. But in those days, the left didn't want any ministry. They said, we want all the intellectual positions, the vice chancellorships of universities. That's when all these uh, leftists got in. And the Indian Council of Historical Research, CSDS, these kind of left-wing social sciences institutions were set up and, and given to the left. 
So they put in place the entire ideology which we are still living with. It's not been dismantled. Even two years of Modi government, they have not really done anything. No, that's because to sort of you need a bunch of intellectuals working on it very seriously to be able to dismantle that as well to come well, up with an alternative. Well, you need to replace those guys with people who are qualified. We, I'm not sure that the the Hindu political establishment has really created intellectual resources. I completely agree. So. Yes. So, yeah. And so the strange thing is, yes, this is true. Uh, so even even the Chinmay Mission schools, the Ramakrishna Mission schools, you know, the they're teaching religious, spiritual ideas, and they're teaching yoga, meditation, good ethics, and so on. But when it comes to history, they're still following a lot of the same stuff. And they, uh, to you know, I my foundation started a project. Uh, on the history of Indian science and technology and we have now got 10 volumes out. Take, each volume takes three years. Because somebody called Joseph Needham in Cambridge had written, had developed 30 volumes or, or some large number of volumes on Chinese science and technology. So this became the standard resource book any China studies center uses because when you study the history of China, it's not just about what they were doing, violence and who they were oppressing. It also has to include their contributions to science and technology. This is a very important thing for India to have, a, a corpus of work on the Indian contributions to science and technology. Nobody would have joined this. I went to IITs. I went to uh, previously Murli Manor Joshi, then this uh, Kapil Sibyl. Uh, you know, they all talked about, yeah, it's great, but no one was willing to help me. So with whatever resources, we produce 10 volumes. They exist. You can buy those 10 volumes. They exist. But this could be huge. And this... This kind of a thing ought to be put into the curriculum for schools because this is written at the university level. This could be put at lower level. This could be made into documentaries. And this, this kind of knowledge of the intellectual contributions of India is very important part of our history. Because when people think of history in the Indian sense, they think it's all about who, who invaded whom and who won and who lost and which year it happened and who destroyed what. But that's just one <coughs> part of history, the history of violence. There's also uh, a history of culture and civilization. Yes. Sure. Can you have a mic? Yeah, we'll get to the mic. 70s and 80s to the U.S. and especially abroad, I think their disinterest in India was a lot more yes. than when some of us went and who came back. So I would still say that I hold, so they actually delineated themselves. I'm talking about the internet from the civilization here. So a lot of those children who grew up will connect because when I speak to my cousins, really for them, like, you know, you see this movie Airlift, which the guy says, I'm a Kuwaiti, and then the Indian government, and then he realizes that India is his identity. Is there some way a problem that the people who went out in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s also let down their children? I'm talking about abroad versus in India. And... And a lot of us have actually come back and are very proud to be Indians and are now contributing in whichever way. So, so it's, a, it's a mixed bag both ways. You can't just blame the government and the schooling system because there's a very large diaspora that lives abroad also. It's also parents. Yeah, I agree with you. And, but, you know, this, this uh, children being alienated from culture, I find that very big time here. Yeah. I find that very big time here. I find that the, the, in, in, in the U.S. I'm feeling that the third generation is coming back. You know, uh, parents, 
are too busy settling down, making money, buying their car, house, you know, getting security and all that, didn't have any time for this and were willing to sell out their identity and culture, had inferiority complexes, whatever it is to just get ahead, ahead in the game, which is normal of immigrant groups in the US. So the children were raised without any identity, they lost and all that. But now when those children grow up and the grandchildren come, they are very careful that they don't go through the same. And that is what these Bal Vihars, these Chinmaya Mission schools, they are doing, they have, you know, maybe 75, 80, 100 of these Chinmaya Mission schools and many others like them. They attract this kind of a group. So that is happening. Here, I am not sure that there is a corrective pendulum because here you have the youth who are kind of radically wanting to westernize at the expense of Indianization. See, China has an interesting idea. China says, we'll take all the technology, all the science, all the material benefits, and we will, we will link it to Chinese Confucian history. And so, this is, this is China's view. Tradition is not in contradiction to modernity. Tradition of China and modernity, our own way, is part of one continuum. So, we need to do that. I mean, we, have, we need to do that in the sense that I should be able to protect my tradition, pass it on to the next generation and be, a, be as modern as possible and feel very Indian doing that. Uh, here it is what is taught is a Western ideology is taught that tradition versus modernity because they, they had to drop their own heritage of Greece, Greek, Latin, you know, civilizational heritage when Christianity came was replaced by something new and the old pagan cultures were destroyed and deleted. So in our case, we have, not had, we have not had a history of destroying the past in order to do something new. So every era, there is the Vedic era, then there is the Itihas, the Puranas, you know, all the way, then there's, then there's the Bhakti eras. But the old ones are not deleted. It's just built on top of those. And in Western civilization, this has happened again and again. So yes. the Renaissance meant that the Christian roots were again... Uh, pushed behind. Then uh, during Victorian period with Darwinism, once again there was a major crisis of faith and science. But in our case, of course, it, as you're saying, built one on top of the other. We don't... Well, it has to do with, again, the earlier question which was asked and I said the, uh, the ability of Indians to deal with, con uh, with complexity, including contradiction. Uh, that there is this and there is also that. problem that kind of thing. I don't have to reconcile that this is okay This kind of an ability, I think, is very interesting, but we are losing it. You have uh, a question. <clears throat> if I may, first of all, a confession. I've not been able to read your book, so please excuse me if it's already answered in the book. But I'd like to understand how you define the Indian civilization. Is it the Indus civilization? Where does it extend? Does it start at Pakistan or Afghanistan? Or does it start you know, at our current border? Does it end at... Okay, so, so, so what do you mean? And yeah. In order to understand India yeah. and Indians, so because there was important. no India yeah. until yeah. the end of the British rule. Yeah, so new evidence is coming all the time, which is very nice. Therefore, we need to invest in research. So we are the ones interpreting rather than outsiders interpreting because a large part of this Indus Saraswati civilization has been interpreted by outsiders. So we are now trying to take control of that. This Indus Saraswati civilization starts from Afghanistan, Pakistan, Sindh, to Punjab, Haryana. Uh, in fact, the largest uh, town discovered so far is in Haryana, is in Haryana. 
So, and the, in terms of Mohenjo-daro and Harappa are famous because they were found earlier. And so they are very large though. But numerically also more, two-thirds of the locations are in present-day India. But you know, we look at prior boundary, which all those were part of this. So that is, a, that is one of the uh, archaeological, uh, you know, uh, evidences that needs to be decoded. The language hasn't been decoded yet. The tiles have got very sharp chiseled, you know, images, but we haven't figured out there is many competing theories on what it is and what it means, but it hasn't been decoded in a conclusive way. Then there is the oral tradition, which is Vedic. <coughs> so the British, I mean the Max Miller, Germans and British come up with this theory that these are Aryans who came from somewhere else, which is not true because you do not find, uh, you do not find any evidence in those countries of the kind of flora and fauna. They are talking about animals and plants and they are talking about ocean and those those are landlocked Central Asian countries, they do not have that, the flora fauna does not exist, they talk about huge mountains, they talk about rivers coming down. So what they are describing exists in this area that I mentioned, it does not exist in Europe or Central Asia. So <coughs> now what you have to do is to take the oral tradition of texts, Sanskrit, Vedas and all that <coughs> and then then integrate that with the archaeological evidence. That has not been done. I think uh, then, you know, that gives us an idea of the, this dual origin, the physical evidence and the intellectual linguistic evidence. But then Indian civilization keeps branching and create many, many things. There is whole Shaivism, the Tantra tradition, uh, the Vedic, the whole Puranas, Itihas, all that kind of stuff. So this grand narrative needs to be written down, needs to be turned into IMAX theatres, uh, it needs to be, the, we need to have a history channel. So the Aryan Dravidian are the same civilization? Yes. No, Aryan, Aryan, Aryan Dravidian are the same group of people in India have a linguistic subcategories. It's not a foreign Aryan idea. And just to sort of, just one point, just to add to that, that the idea of the geography of India is also there in the manner of a sacred geography in Mahabharat and Ramayan. So, you know, there, are, there have been works on this, the pilgrim routes that have marked this territory uh, beyond the political boundaries which may have shifted, but pilgrim routes have remained over thousands of years. See, one of the... Uh they ask for who represents Hinduism. So we know there's many mathas and many organizations. <coughs> the oldest, <coughs> the oldest known are Akhadas. Akhadas are sadhu groups. And the sadhu Akhadas as organized groups, they are the owners of the Kumbhmela, which is the oldest recorded practice tradition, ritual, whatever you want to call it, of our culture and of any culture in the world. <clears throat> so the history of the Kumbh Mela is a very solid history of who we are because there is 8,000 year old, 8,000 years of recorded Akharas. Akharas, when they have a Kumbh Mela, in a sense it's their event. They are the event managers and they are the event participants. All of us who go are invited guests. It's their 
event. You know, this is very interesting. Right now, officially and legally, Akhara's own the Kumbh Mela. And many of the grounds where the uh, Kumbh Mela is held are owned by the Akhara's. But the number of people coming has grown so much, they need to get government lands, rent it, government takes over. Infrastructural support. And they are, government gives infrastructure support. But the core Kumbh Mela is an Akhara project. I talked to the, the, the 13 Akhara's now. They used to be more, then they disintegrated, then they got reorganized, and they disintegrated. Adi Shankara reorganized them, revived them about 13, 1400 years ago. Right now, there are 13 active Akhara's with 1 lakh members to 5 lakh members each, total of about 20 lakh members who are official sadhus. They are each got a name, identity, membership number, so it's a very formal thing. That's a very large group. Now, these 13 Akhara's have the Akhara Parishad, which is a, a kind of collection of all 13 represented by one. The Akhara Parishad, I'm delighted, they endorsed my book which is the first time they endorsed the book because they used, they endorsed my book because actually I wrote an article on the Kumbh Mela and what dangers it sees. What are the dangers and threats concerning the Kumbh Mela because it's getting out of hand and many people are infiltrating the Kumbh Mela and it might be in, in disarray. The, every time there's a Kumbh Mela, the, astro, astro, the uh, astronomical layout of the star, stars, the different nakshatras is recorded very precisely what was the map of the sky. And who are the Mahamandaleshwars? Mahamandaleshwar is the head of each Akhada. Who is the Mahamandaleshwar representing each of the Akhadas who came? And their names and all that is recorded. So you can go back to the Akhada records and there is software that validates that, uh, that in that year, wow. in fact, the sky was like that. You know, So that you can say, okay, if this, if this was the state of the galaxies or whatever, the different uh, systems of stars, uh, you can actually validate that this is not just made up, this is literally how it was. Uh, so this record, people don't know about. So I was telling them, why don't you publish? You should publish a book on the history of the Akhadas, the history of the Kumbh Mela, and this is the definitive history of who we are, older than Harapta Daru also, because that, that would be a, a huge narrative for our people to know. And they are very... Uh, not very sophisticated modern people. I, I'm a volunteer for this project. Yeah, yeah. Please enroll me. Yeah. So this is the kind of project I love to do if there's resources because they, they, they are very interested now. They are realized that they are under threat, that now this business of being isolated sadhus, you cannot just go on because there's encroachment into their turf, into their, in, you know, into their lifestyle, and so they'll be just finished. There'll be no sadhus left in the next generation. Nobody wants to be one. So they are also interested in bringing out knowledge to educate the public. And if there were uh, people interested, I mean, we would do these projects. Uh, I, have, uh, I have a million questions to ask, but I'm going to restrict to one. Uh, this is a question which is very close to my heart because I'm an architect. Um, you know, from time immemorial, right down from the colonial, uh, colonization of India, governments have made willful decisions to overturn history. Uh, right down from introducing English as a language of uh, uh, civil service, so post-independence, in the, in the need to industrialize, Nehru actually went out and brief, made a brief for Chandigarh, which said to design a city unfettered by the presence of the past. That was Corbusier's brief. And Corbusier was imported into this country, 
which, will, which has had the skill of master craftsmen and guilds and guilds and guilds of architects which still make India the country for which the Western world visits us. However bad we do on our tourism numbers, but it is, it is our international presence, the visual of our architecture. Till date, and then, then of the three schools of design that existed in this country, almost all graduating batches trained at Chandigarh for the next two decades. Then they go out and form the public works department of this country, and we get what we see today. And this continues without patronage, only on a path set by Nehru. Now right. today, our developers, Very good point. our developers go out and say, we need foreign architects. The term foreign architects is absolutely wonderful and fantastic and well, well incorporated into our system and has become one with the DNA of this country's development. And I'll tell you one thing. Hmm. A friend of mine, an Indian, who lives in Princeton, very dear friend of mine, she's an architect. Her company, which is a major American architecture company, got the architecture contract for the Sadar Patel statue hmm. by Modi. And I was very surprised. I said, why would they bring an American architecture firm? Yeah. And when we say they, foreign... They, they asked my advice how to pitch. What is, uh, how do you make it uh, Hindu friendly and all. I, I, I just sitting over in their house chatting. I, di I didn't have any formal role. But they wanted to pick a lot of people's brains to make sure their proposal is good. And it's they accepted. came back, they won the contract. Then they delivered the first phase, second phase and all that. I don't know. I'm just an observer. But it bothered me that, uh, you know, we have this complex. And when we say foreign architect, we only mean Gora architect, not no, African, no, no. Are, Japanese. Today, to, no, today we are okay with Singaporean, we are okay with Vietnamese also, we are okay with South African also. Non yeah, it means non-Indian. Non -Indian, but not African. No, no. African is, is still no, not cool. I want to go one. But let me tell you, ask you this. Suppose, suppose, hypothetically, if Rajiv Gandhi had married an African huh. rather than Sonia Gandhi, Hmm. Do you think that that African wife of his and widow would have been as powerful? No, no, of course not. So, is there a, is there a color complex? So, so I was I, coming to that. So I was coming to that as the next thing. So as a young Indian architect who had studied in Premier Institute, also promoted by Nehru, the concept of Premier Institute, Indian Institute of Technology, School of Planning and Architecture, as a student graduating from that, I felt, I felt that there must be something, a shortcoming in me. So I decide that I will go and get what the best also, what the best has to offer. <coughs> and I go and get that. Today in this country, when I try and operate, I said, you want the Indian best? On paper, I have it. You want the Western best? On paper, I have it. Now, please tell me what is it that is bothering you? Huh? It is the color. It is clearly the color. Because brand myself has incorporated the best of India and the West. I'm very glad you raised this. Mm. Two books that educated me a lot, I'll tell you about it a little bit, and then I'm writing a sequel to that. The first book was, and I'm trying to understand American history through identity formation. So one book is called How the Irish Became White. Now you all think Irish are white. But in the American system, whiteness was a labor category. You had to join white unions to be called white. So when the blacks were freed from slavery, they would undercut their labor rates and they would get jobs. So to protect white labor, they created white-only unions. That's the origin of unions in America. And they would get contracts that you cannot be hiring non-union people. So this white union origins started. But then when, it, when Irish immigrated, the problem was that they were a colony of England. 
So back home, the guy is a colonized person under the English, but now he comes to America and wants to join as an equal. So they were excluded from being white in terms of unions. Also, they were Catholics, whereas the yeah. So they were, but, wasp, they, but the but the yeah, but the the colonization was a factor. So they had a war. They had, I mean, they had this kind of a violence and all that. And then a treaty was raised that okay, Irish will be treated as white. So that's the story of how the Irish became white. Then there's another book that influenced me a lot in this, how the Jews became white folks, where until early 1900s, the Jews were not considered whites. The white Jews themselves didn't think of themselves as whites. And so all this, how they mobilized, how they created the Anti-Defamation League and legal cases, whatever, whatever, and the Jews finally became white. And one of the books I'm writing on is how the Indians become white. Now, the Indians becoming white is not white skin necessarily. It's also ideological, your accent your style and is it uh, what is the latest you can talk about uh, you know what is the latest style, latest lingo name dropping uh, so it is an intellectual branding uh, emotional cultural whiteness that this, Indians, this Indians kind of Indians. This, this kind of branding goes against the very notion of uh, branding yourself as an indian that is correct so therefore success is doomed so we may end up being a second class, second class Western satellite country. And we cannot hope to be a superpower like China because China is not interested in being somebody's satellite. Yep. China says we are who we are and you have to accept us as we are. Hmm. China has even got another internet. They're building their own internet which will be 100 times the speed of this internet because they don't trust that this traffic is being monitored and wiretapped and all that. So China is creating everything on its own. China is not. Uh, China is sending a lot of its people to go and get MBAs and uh, technology degrees and come back to China. But China is also in parallel creating itself an education hub and bringing people from Africa, Latin America, developing countries. More foreign students coming to China every year than Chinese students going out. You see, so China is doing both. They, they, they also want to replace the West as a center of learning. And we don't have that. We are not creating... Uh, Indian, you know, universities like Nalanda, Takshashila kind of places where we could be training the rest of the world in our way of life and our civilization, we are very happy that we are being educated somewhere else. So this, what you are referring to is a product of uh, wanting by policy to westernize. who, you know, have succeeded. And I'll tell you the big challenge, and I didn't ask, but Shilpa has asked me to elude the question. The biggest problem with the civilization is actually how Hindus think about Hindus and how do they portray themselves. So it's the 50% who, I, I'm a Sikh, so I can ask that question because I think of myself as a Hindu, actually. And I say, you know, for my, me, my identity is because, you know, I'm an Indian. And, and I see when you go brand yourself in a way where you're already accepting that you're not the best, I think you admitted defeat. I'll tell you, look at Satya Nadella, you look at Sundar Pichai, you look at Rana Talwar. There are many Indians who've done and risen to global peaks. Tell me five Chinese that have risen to global peaks. Yeah. So, fair enough. Uh, the question to be asked is whether these American CEOs who are Indians, in their public display, not in uh, with the other Indians, I agree with 
whether they feel they are Indian or not, whether they have discarded that Indianness as a price to rise, uh, and you will see that they generally have. They have, they have also, so they are ethnically, genetically DNA Indian, but maybe in their investment, where, they, where are they invested, where is their future, uh, it may not be that much linked to India. I mean, I mix with a lot of these people. In, in the town I live, there's a lot of uh, exceedingly well-to-do Indians who've done very well. Princeton is a very elite kind of town. And I feel that they're mixed up, you know, they're sort of, ghar uh, puja hogi, diwali hogi, but the way they're raising the kids and the way they want to project themselves in the public, they will not stick their neck out for Indian culture. They will compromise. Unless it's an Indian gathering, it's all bath, double bath. Hai. So that is true. Chinese, so Chinese are not going about it as an individual achieving success as CEO. Chinese are going about it collectively. Let me tell you this. China has built a, a one layer at a time strategy. So first is the back office, then value added into certain technologies and, you know, industrial industrial products. You don't find Chinese consumer goods today. You don't find a Toyota. You don't find a Samsung. But that's coming. You will find the Chinese using their cash to invest in global brands, buying them out. So you will see the Chinese entering the global CEO by acquisition and also organic growth. So China is not uh, only going to stop at, you know, low-cost manufacturing. So it's not just that. They're actually going to go into the... Higher up the value chain. Higher up the value chain and consumer products. Right now, there's no Chinese uh, brand in the U.S. Uh, in most categories. But you will see it coming. They're marketing in other places. India may market career. So they're testing out these things, getting their feet wet. They're very systematically going about it. You will see Chinese buying off one of the major TV networks. One of the top three, four TV networks, they just buy whatever billions it takes, just acquire it, put Chinese people there, and then you will see it like Al Jazeera is doing for the Arabs, a certain branding. Yes. You know, Chinese will do that. It's not permitted. Huh? It's not permitted today by the FBI regulation. No, no, I'm talking about in the U.S. Oh, right. Yeah, in media won't here, right here. But I'm saying that Chinese entry into the Western countries uh, has now reached a place where they got so much confidence, so much cash, uh, they will go into all. They're less interested that five Chinese as individuals become CEOs. They're not, they're not, that's not their style. It's not so uh, entrepreneurial. One just small question, sir, as you mentioned, you know that... Uh, Indians are not allowed or they're not working in Iraq or Afghanistan or Syria. But to be honest with you, I think it's all media. It's a, you know, it's the other way around, like American company, Halliburton KBR, you know, which is one of the largest beneficiaries of Rebuild Iraq. Today, it's procuring over $3 billion worth of goods. I'm involved in infrastructure and I've done a lot of business in Iraq, you know, pre-war, post-war, and now also be doing it. But they're buying over $3 billion worth of electrical equipment from India which is going to Iraq under the American label of Halliburton. And it's all, I think, to do with media, whereas the Iraqis or the Afghanis, they would prefer to come and deal directly. It's the Indian laborers who are building up their transmission lines and substations. So, you know... Uh, We're subcontractors. So we are basically subcontracting. But eventually, the products are going. The services are being used from India. That's good to know. Industry which is worth $25 billion. $5 billion is the export. $3 billion is only to these war prone countries where things are happening today. So, my question was very simple. How about the mic? 
about the different parts of India and how performances vary. So the performer must know local cultural variations and if you see the if you look at the chapter it's available you'll see that the examples are drawn from different parts of india that would correspond geographically to what we have thank you uh